there's five uh, Sundays in August. Uh, and for those, each of those five Sunday mornings, I'm going to be looking with you at various parables that Jesus used to teach people. Uh, he was a master teacher and he used stories, he used parables as ways of getting across truth. Uh, you know, every other religion believes that its founder was a master teacher. So you have uh, Buddha or Muhammad or uh, uh, you have various uh, teachers, Confucius, who founded these great religions. Now, Christianity, alone amongst the world's great religions, insists that its founder was not only a teacher, but he was a God, he was God himself and savior. Of course, that's a tremendous claim. It's what sets Christianity apart from other religions and what really makes it troublesome to people. Uh, what keeps it, what, it's what keeps Christianity from fitting in with the other religions, and it never has. Uh, but, you know, we can't miss this point that because Jesus was much more than a teacher, therefore he was such a teacher because of who he was. And for the next five weeks, I'd like to show you the masterful nature of his teaching as well as the masterful nature, of course, of the message. Not just of what he's getting across, but how he's getting it across. I'd like to look at you, look at you, I see you, you can look at me, but I'd like to look with you at Luke 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan. One of the first things I preached on when I was here three years ago when we were first getting started. If you're a real old timer, you remember we spoke on this, but this was, uh, that was in like May of 89 when we only had evening services here and when we weren't taping these things either yet. And I'm looking with you at Luke chapter 10, and I'm going to read verses 25 to 37. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Footnote. <laughs> this is not a secular lawyer. This is a religious lawyer. That means this was a master of the religious law of the, of the, uh, the scripture. In other words, he was more like a seminary professor than a lawyer. Uh, and just keep that in mind, he's a religious expert. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Uh, which of these three, Jesus said, do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? 
The law expert replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is God's word. This is an amazing passage, and I, for years in studying it, it didn't come clear to me what Jesus was getting at until I realized that maybe the key to the whole passage is this little question in verse 29, where the lawyer says, but he wanted to justify himself. And so he said, who is my neighbor? Let me show you why that's the key to understanding everything Jesus is getting at. The, 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 uh, you might say the point of the passage or the, the subject of the passage is love. Love. When the uh, lawyer says, well, the essence of the law is love God and love my neighbor, and Jesus says, that's it. That shows that Jesus is pointing this out. Love is the essence of what it means to be human. When the lawyer says, what must I do to inherit eternal life, what he's saying is, Jesus, what are the requirements that God has given me so that he will accept me and he will favor me and he will give me his life? The lawyer is actually saying, what did God build me for? What is the essence of what God requires of me? What does it mean for me to be what I was built to be and be a human being? And Jesus says, love. And that makes perfect sense to us. Love is, unfortunately, completely dominating of our lives. It's the loss of love that makes you not want to live. It's the hope and the certainty of love that makes you want to live. When you're experiencing and giving love, you feel the most human. When you're not, you feel like an animal or you feel like a vegetable or a mineral or a machine. And so what Jesus is clearly saying is something that's just intuitively true. We all know it. The essence of what it means to be a human being, what you were built for, what God requires of you, what it means to live a human life is to love. But what Jesus says about love in this passage cuts against common sense about love that you find amongst modern people today. When he says love is what life is all about, love is what God built us to do, that makes sense. But then, what do you sh let, let me show you what the master teacher teaches. He teaches against the common received sense that most people will tell you about love on the street, in the, in the barbershop, wherever you are. Look, first, the first thing he teaches is that real love doesn't begin until you see that you can't really love. There's a lot of ways to put this first principle. The first principle is, until you see you're incapable of love, you're incapable of love. Until you see you can't love, you can't love. Real love begins when you see you don't have real love. That is clearly what Jesus is trying to do to the lawyer. You see, uh, when the, we're told that the lawyer tried to trap Jesus. It doesn't use the word trap in the translation I just read you. It says a lawyer wanted to test Jesus. But the word test, the word test, it, it, it got a negative side to it. It's a word that has the, the denotation, connotation of trap. The law expert wanted Jesus to say something bad about the law. Now here's why. The law expert believed what most religious leaders of that time believed and what most of the religious leaders in your life have taught you, probably. That's, that's true of me. And that is that the way to get to heaven or the way to get 
one with God or the way to be saved or the way to uh, have God's favor, the way to do that is to take the Ten Commandments and obey them all of your life and be as good as you possibly can. That's what he believed. That's what everybody taught in the day. That's what most of you have been taught to. In other words, he believed that you can justify yourself. To justify means to make yourself just, to make yourself righteous, to make yourself good. And he believed that, but he was testing Jesus because Jesus said a lot of very suspicious things. See, Jesus would occasionally say, you can receive the kingdom now, you can enter the kingdom now. And the lawyer would sit there and say, wait a minute, how do you know you're going to get into God's kingdom unless you live a good life all of your life and then maybe you'll get into God's kingdom? But Jesus said something, is constantly saying you can receive the kingdom of God now. The lawyer was hoping that by asking Jesus this question, Jesus would say something that showed he didn't honor the law of God. He was hoping that Jesus would say, oh, well, you don't really have to obey the Ten Commandments and be good and moral and, and honest and all that. All you have to do is trust me, and then everything is fine. So he was hoping Jesus would say something like that. You don't have to obey the law. All you've got to do is be my follower. And then he would say, aha, you dishonor the law of Moses. You dishonor the law of our fathers. Your, uh, uh, your teaching encourages licentiousness and so forth. So that was the trap. But Jesus has a trap too. You know, it's funny. Uh, good teachers always try to trap their students into the truth. Haven't you ever seen that? Have you seen a really good teacher? A good teacher doesn't just get up there and tell you the truth. A good teacher asks questions and, and tries to get you to the place where you're, fine. you're, you're trapped and you, the only way to get out is the truth. He, you know, you, you say something and he'll say, well, is that right? And he'll ask you a question and destroys your idea. And then, then you say something else and he asks you a question that shows you again that that's, that's no way out. A good teacher traps you, gets you into a corner, surrounds you until there's no alternative but the truth. A good teacher is out to help you. And Jesus is a good teacher and therefore his traps are always traps of love. And by the way, some of you might be in one of those traps right now. You're surrounded. There doesn't seem to be any answers. But you know, if you're looking to Jesus, if you're, if you're seeking him and you feel trapped, just remember this. His traps are always traps of love. I know this is a tangent. I just got back from vacation. I'm not thinking straight. I know this is a tangent. But if you're surrounded, if you feel like there's no way out, if you feel like you've got a question and you don't seem to have any answers right now, that's the way a good teacher works. But a good teacher puts you in that position until finally you find the truth. You discover Jesus only traps you to get you to turn to him. It's a trap of love. And in this case, he, he has a trap. He asks the lawyer a question. Instead of giving the lawyer the answer he wanted, he comes back with a question. He says, okay, tell me what's in the law. What does the law say? Now, the only way to answer a question like that would be to recite the entire Old Testament, <laughs> you know, for five or six weeks standing right there, or you summarize it. And what Jesus was trying to get the man to say was what the rabbis summarized the law of God as in those days. In those days, it was typical for the rabbis to say all of the law summarizes into two principles, love God and love your neighbor. In fact, if you look at the Ten Commandments, you'll see the first parts, the first commandments all have to do with loving God. I am the Lord thy God, I have no other gods before me, don't take the Lord's name in vain, and so forth. 
And the last part of the Ten Commandments have to do with loving your neighbor. Don't kill, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't covet, don't envy, and so forth. And so all the rabbis of the day said, you know, all the law basically comes down to love. Two kinds, love to God and love to our neighbor. So when Jesus asked the lawyer what is in the law, he was asking him to summarize it. He knew he would get that answer. And as soon as he gets the answer, Jesus says what? Hmm? He says, that's it. Perfect love. That's it. That's what the law requires. That's what God wants from you. That's what it means to be a human being. Perfect love. Do that. Live a life of perfect love, and you're set. No problem. Just live a life of perfect love. What is Jesus trying to do? Jesus does it every time. You remember the place in, Matt, in Mark chapter 10 where the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus does not say, oh, just follow me, receive me. He doesn't do that. He says, you know what's in the law. What's in the law? Obey the law. And, and the rich young ruler says, I've always obeyed the law, just like this man says, I've obeyed the law. Jesus comes back and says, listen, I take the law more seriously than you do. If you want to get into heaven, if you want God to receive you, you have to obey the law perfectly. And the only way to obey the law perfectly, the only way to fulfill it, is to love perfectly. Because if you look at all the rules, and you, may, you, know, you, can, you can take the Old Testament and break it down into seven or 800 rules, and you start to obey the rules, you can feel like a pretty good person. But if you look at what the rules are getting at, the life of perfect love, the heart of perfect love, the life of perfect love, then you'll see then you'll see what God is really after, and you'll see that you don't even come close. I take the law more seriously than you. You want to be saved by doing? What must I do to inherit eternal life? You want to be saved? You do have to obey the law. The whole thing, and the law is perfect love. Love perfectly. And he's crushing the lawyer. He's backing him into a corner. Because the lawyer wants, wants Jesus to say, well, just do what you're doing. Live this really obedient life. And Jesus is trying to say, yeah, you have to live an obedient life, and there's no way that you will ever be able to do it. He's trying to get the lawyer, like a, like a good teacher, he's trying to get the student to cry out and say, my old solutions to this problem do not suffice. What is the answer? He's trying to show the lawyer he doesn't love. You see, those laws, those two principles, think with me for a minute. What do those principles mean? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. That's just completely logical. Where did you get your mind from? Where did you get your soul from? Where did you get your strength from? All of it, where did it come from? Either it's an accident or else God gave it to you. you know, there's only two alternatives. Either there's a God who created you and you owe him everything. Everything you have is from him or else you're just an accident. You know, you're just a germ. You're just a grown-up germ. You're a slime. You know, you've evolved from the slime. There's only two possibilities, all right? And if there's a God, then he, owes, he, give, he gave you everything, and you owe him everything. And, and to love him simply means to say, I should give him what he's given me, and that is everything. Some of you know that uh, one of my favorite quotes is Archbishop William Temple, who said, religion is what you do with your solitude. And what he means by that is when you don't have to think of anything, when you don't have to think of anything, what do you think of? That's your God. That's your religion. What is it that has the preeminent place in your thoughts? 
What is it that you most want to think about? What is it that has the highest place in your heart? Is it your career? Is it a relationship? Is it a vacation? Is it, is it your looks? What is it? Whatever it is, that's your God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind means nothing comes first. Nothing comes before God. Nothing absorbs you. Nothing delights your thoughts more than that. It means to love God with 100% of your thoughts 100% of the time. How are you doing at this one? Are you, how are you doing with this principle? Hmm? It's, it's logical if he gave you all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind that you should give him preeminence in your heart, soul, strength, and mind. It's perfectly logical and no one comes close. Nobody who's even got a smidgen of honesty will believe that you come close to giving what is only God's due. And then the second principle, love your neighbor as yourself. That's perfectly fair, isn't it? Perfectly fair. It doesn't even say love neighbors more than yourself. It just says this, if you love your neighbor as yourself, that means you will meet the needs of the person next to you with as much delight as you meet your own, with as much time, with as much thought, with as much power, with as, you see? When somebody else gets something that you wanted, you know, when she gets the silver and you come in tenth, you should be as happy for your neighbor as you would have been for yourself. And you look at that and you say, nobody loves like that. But that's what the law of God is after. Why? Because that's how God is. That's his own gracious, glorious goodness. And that's what he says he built you to do and built you to be. And every one of us knows that there wouldn't even be life without the golden rule. There wouldn't be a society if we didn't lo love one another as we want to be loved. And yet nobody with a smidgen of honesty believes that we really do it. We don't even get close to it. Jesus says, lawyer, Love perfectly, and you will get to heaven. Love perfectly, and you will be saved. Love perfectly, and God will accept you. Just go ahead. Jesus always does this to anybody who wants to come to him. He says to the rich young ruler, he says to the law expert, he says to you and to me, to anybody who even begins to come and say, Jesus, I really want your life in my life. The first thing he does is he says, will you see how inadequate you are? Here's a man who comes and says, I want to inherit eternal life. And the first thing Jesus says is, real love doesn't start until you see that you're not really loving. If you think you're a, lovable pers a loving person, you will never love the way I can teach you to love. All the studies, all the Gallup polls, all the research indicates that 90% of all people believe that they love more than the average person. Most people believe that they're very loving. Jesus says to those 90%, if you think you're a loving person, you can never learn the kind of love that I can teach you. The Christian love, real love, starts by acknowledging that you don't come close to real love. Okay? That's the first principle, the first thing he teaches. The first thing he does is he tries to discourage this lawyer and says, you don't love like that. Now, he feels the pressure. That's why I said that verse 29 is so critical. It says, but he wanted to justify himself. That shows what Jesus is getting at. That shows how he feels. That shows the whole, you see, this unlocks the whole key of what Jesus is getting at. Jesus is trying to say, you will never justify yourself by your love. You'll never be loving. Now, see, let's, let's take a look at this word justify. The word justify isn't a word we use too much anymore. I mean, we, you know, if you, if you use a, personal computer, if you do word processing, you justify the margins. That doesn't help very much anymore. 
The word justify isn't used. The word justify means to make right with something, to become right with someone. If I go to my grocery store and I, and I, and I get my groceries and I'm starting to write a check, they say, oh, you're Tim Keller. Your last 50 checks have bounced. <laughs> I don't think we're going to give you this food. Uh, we're not right with each other. You've never paid us for all the other food that you've taken. You've got debts, you've got obligations, there's a barrier between us. We can't make transactions. Now the problem is that I'm not right with my grocer. And either I or somebody has to make good that obligation, make good that debt. Somebody's got to set that right. I've got to be justified with my grocer if I'm ever going to have any transactions. The Bible teaches, and Jesus is trying to say to this lawyer, you cannot justify yourself with God. You cannot love him. You cannot be a righteous person. There is no way that you can possibly do it. There's got to be another way. But he wanted to justify himself. So Jesus is trying to get him into a corner. He wants to get him into despair. He's trying to get him to say this. Here's what he's trying to do. And he's, if this has never happened to you, you're not a Christian. Now listen to what I'm about to say. In 1741, in Middlebury, Connecticut, there was a man named Nathan Cole. He was a farmer. And Nathan thought he was a believer. He thought he was a Christian. He had been raised just like this lawyer. He thought being a Christian was being a good person. And one day in 1741, George Whitfield, a great gospel preacher, an Anglican priest, came to Middlebury, Connecticut to preach the gospel. Nathan Cole went to that sermon and he was converted there. The reason we know about Nathan Cole is because he wrote down the account of his conversion and it has come down to us today and it's in the archives of Yale University and it's a fascinating account. But I'll never forget how it ends. He says this. He says, my hearing Whitfield preach gave me a heart wound. And by God's grace, my old foundation was broken up and I saw that my righteousness could not save me. Hear that? Three things. He says, my preaching gave me a heart, my hearing him preach gave me a heart wound. Number two, by God's grace, my old foundation was broken up. Number three, and I saw my righteousness could not save me. His old foundation. He thought he was a pretty good person. He was part of the 90%, even though probably George Gallup hadn't polled him. He thought he was as loving as anybody else, more loving than most. He thought he was a pretty good person. He had an old foundation. And suddenly, through that young preacher, Jesus appeared and basically came after his heart and, and got him in a corner the way he goes after everybody that is, he is seeking and everybody who deals with him. He comes after Nathan Cole and he says, your righteousness will not save you. There's got to be a different way. You cannot justify yourself. What, did the lawyer, what should the lawyer have said to Jesus? He should have said, oh my word, you're right. I can't be righteous. I can't justify myself. I'm not a loving person. What must I do? And then Jesus could have said, but he didn't because the lawyer didn't give him a chance. He could have said what he says a lot of other places, a lot of elsewhere. He says, it's by the mercy of God, and the mercy of God is this, though you're poor in spirit, though you're spiritually bankrupt, though you see that... Uh, you don't obey the golden rule, that you don't love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. You don't love your neighbor as yourself. I, Jesus Christ, 
came not just as a teacher to show you how to justify yourself, but I came as your justifier. See, Confucius and Mohammed and Buddha, they all came to say, I'm the teacher, here's the law, now justify yourself. Do it. But Jesus does not come to tell you how to justify yourself. He comes as your justifier. He says, Jesus says, I came and I lived a perfect life. I loved my God with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind. I loved my neighbor as myself. And my record becomes yours when you see that I died for you and paid the debt. I justified. The transactions between you and God can occur again. Everything can be set straight if you believe in me as your justifier instead of yourself. The lawyer didn't do that. But that's what Jesus was trying to get him to, to say. And therefore, that's our second principle. The first principle is real love is impossible till you see that real love is impossible. That was the first principle. You're incapable of real love till you see that you're incapable of real love. But the second principle is real love begins when you see Christ's love for you. That's what he was trying to get the lawyer. That's what he was trying to show him. That's what he told Nathan Cole through George Whitfield. That's what he told the rich young ruler. That's what he told, you see, the woman who wiped his feet with her hair. And then he told Simon, she's forgiven much because she loves much because she's forgiven much. What Jesus is saying is, you are spiritually bankrupt, but I have prayed the debt. I have justified you. And real Christian love, real Christian love, has a particular quality and a nature that's unique to it. And it doesn't begin till you see that you're a sinner saved by grace. If you're a self-justifier, if you're self-justified, there's, kind of, there's a kind of compassion you can show people, of course. There's a kind of love that you can show people. But the Christ-justified person is capable of a certain kind of love that has its own quality, has an unconditionality, has a power, has a dynamic. And anybody in this room who's moved from being self-justified to being Christ-justified knows the difference. If you know you're a sinner saved by grace, that he justified you, it melts you. It humbles you. And it continually redynamizes you. And that's what I want to move on to and show. Because you see, first, real love, the first principle is real love. You're incapable of real love till you see you're incapable of real love. And the second principle is real love starts when you're stunned into silence by the love of Christ for paying your debt. You're stunned into, the, into silence by the thought that Jesus Christ paid the debt of your lovelessness. And real love doesn't start till you see in amazement his love for you paying that debt. Now, then thirdly, the kind of love that comes out of a sinner saved by grace is the kind of love that's depicted in this parable. The law expert says, well, who is my neighbor? What is his motive? It tells us he wanted to justify himself. And that means he's turning to Jesus and saying, Jesus, could you be more specific? You know, let's be specific. Let's nail this down a little bit. You see, when you say, love the Lord your God with all heart, soul, strength, and mind, love the neighbor as yourself, I start to feel kind of guilty and inadequate. Well, why don't you boil it down? Give me a few rules. Give me something nice and easy so that I can master it. And Jesus tells us an interesting story, and you've got to realize that what Jesus is trying to show this man is the essence of the love 
that God requires and can produce in people who are saved by grace. And what he does is he tells the story of a Samaritan who finds a Jew who's been beaten and robbed in a road. He stops, he takes care of him, he gives him medical care, he, he gives him a friendship, he gives him a financial outlay, he takes him to a, a, an inn and makes sure that he's recuperating there, he comes on back. Let me just tell you the magnitude of what this Samaritan has done. First of all, think about a couple things. First of all, you must realize that stop, the reason that the, the priest and the Levite don't stop there, there's, there's a lot of speculation as to why, but the point is it was tremendously dangerous. Uh, you know, it's, it's a little bit like stopping in the worst part of New York where there's no street lights at 3 a.m. You don't get out of your car, you know, to give somebody directions. You don't get out. You're scared. You're frightened. The priest and the, uh, and the Levite went by because they said, oh, the robbers are here. This is the kind of place where people are always beating, beaten up and, and robbed. And so on they ran. They weren't sure they could save this man anyway. It looked like he was dead. Why should stopping? If I stop here, I may get robbed too. The good Samaritan takes his life in his hands to stop. Secondly, he gives him the most concrete kind of care, medical treatment. He gets his hands dirty. He destroys his schedule wherever he was going. He takes this man to an inn, and the commentators tell you the two coins, the two silver coins, was basically two months' rent. And you try to put somebody up anywhere for two months, and you'll see it costs money. He's an advocate. He says to the innkeeper, I will pay any extra, whatever it is, when I come back. And you have to remember that not only is the Samaritan risking his life, getting dirty, destroying his schedule, giving the most concrete and expensive and costly kind of help, but the Samaritan is doing it for a sworn enemy. The Jews and the Samaritans were tremendous enemies. We know from history that the worst thing a Jew could call a person was a Samaritan. You know in John 8, when, they, when they're real mad at Jesus and they don't know what to call him, they say, you're a Samaritan? Did you know it was common for Jews to get up in the morning and say, Lord, give me a good day. Uh, give me this day my daily bread. Keep me safe today. And Lord, I pray that there will be no Samaritans in the resurrection on the last day. That was common. There was that kind of hatred. The Samaritan was not giving you a love that was sentimental. He got dirty. It was expensive. But more than that, he was giving his love to an enemy. Why would Jesus take such an extreme example? Because he's saying, and now hear it carefully, the mark of a heart that's been touched by the grace of God, it will inevitably, inevitably be led to deeds of compassion to the neediest, to the most broken, and even to the most ungrateful, and the, and the kind of person who is the furthest away from you demographically, socially, physically, every other way. Real love that can come out of a heart touched by grace is extreme. You see, some people look at this and say, this is very odd. I believe you should take care of the poor, but uh, why would Jesus bring this up? Jesus brings this up because he brings it up constantly. He tells the rich young ruler, give away most of your, your money and, and give it to the poor. And in Matthew 12, 25, he says the same thing like this. No, let me, let me show you. Matthew 25, he says, he, he says on the last day, Jesus will show up. And you'll see a whole pile of people in front of him, and they all will claim to be Christians. What will he do? 
boy. He'll say to some on his right hand, he'll say, you, you can enter into the joy of my, the master. I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was naked and you clothed me. I was homeless and you sheltered me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And they say, when did we see you in that condition, Lord? And he says, because you did it to these others. Because you treated the homeless and the hungry and the sick and the, and the poor in this way, you treated me this way. So you are saved. You can enter into the kingdom. And then he turns to another group of people. And remember, these are also people who think they're Christians. I get scary here, all right? Bite your nails, listen carefully. And he says to them, he says, you're not the sheep, you're the goats. Because I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me drink. I was in prison and you didn't come to me. I was sick and you didn't take care of me. And they say, when did we see you in that condition? And he says, because of the way you treated them, you treated me in the same way. What is he getting at? Some people have been very confused by Matthew 25, very confused by the parable of the Good Samaritan, in which Jesus is saying, this is how you've got to live if you're going to be saved. Because isn't it true, the Bible, didn't I just spend all this time saying that you're only saved not by your good works, but by belief in Christ? Hmm? Therefore, it looks, to, looks like Jesus is saying the social workers are all, the only ones going to heaven. How could that be? And here's the answer. Now, carefully listen. Here's, think about, imagine these are two trees here. Here on the left is a tree full of leaves. <laughs> and here on the right is a tree, and this is in the middle of July, of course, uh, early August. Here's a tree without any leaves at all. It's barren. Well, which tree is alive? Well, it's this one. Why? Do the leaves give that tree life? No. The leaves reveal the tree has life. And when Jesus talks about the way in which we treat the neediest people, and in this particular case, how we treat people of other races, when he says, the way you treat people of other races, the way you treat people who are the most broken, who are the furthest from you, who, 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 who stink the most, who are the most unsightly, the people who, who are the most uh, dire and destitute, the people to whom you must go the farthest to reach, the way you treat the people who are the costliest to help. They don't just take a, a, a listening ear. They take time, they take money, they take tremendous expense, like in the case of the Good Samaritan. The way you treat those people will show whether or not you're self-justified or whether you know you're a sinner saved by grace. There it is. It's not, Jesus says, the way you treated the, you know, the hungry and the poor is what actually gets you into heaven. It's the way you treated them shows me whether you see me as just a teacher through which you justify yourself or shows me whether you believe I'm your savior and that you're a sinner saved by grace. You know, true story, a woman, an old woman who had no children and no husband was very wealthy and her only heir was a nephew. And she really didn't know what kind of guy he was like because whenever he was around her, she, he was beautiful and wonderful and warm. He didn't want to leave her money to, a, to a, a scoundrel or a selfish person, so she dressed up as a homeless lady and sat on his front porch steps or the steps of his townhouse to watch how he would treat her when she, he came out. And he treated, her, he treated her rudely, he treated her coarsely, he threatened her. And then she knew what he was really like. 
And when Jesus says, as you treated the poor, so you treated me, you know what he's saying? He's saying, I am the broken people in the world. I am the people that you least want to help. I am them. Because when you look at somebody without resources, when you look at somebody who stinks, literally, when you look at someone who's unsightly and unlovely, when you look at somebody who, who has absolutely nothing attractive about them, if you're a sinner saved by grace, you'll know you're looking in a mirror. If you're a sinner saved by grace, you will know immediately that that's what you look like to Jesus. That's what you look like to the Father unless Jesus covered you with his own righteousness. And you'll immediately say, if I have received all this wealth, spiritual wealth, if I have been made righteous, if I have been justified, in spite of what I deserve, how can I begrudge anyone anything? But a self-justified person, a moral person, will say, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, I have. Jesus says to the lawyer, you want to know what kind of love the Father requires? Here it is. Anybody can love people who are right next to them. Anybody can love people if it doesn't cost a lot. Anybody can love people who are just like them. Hmm? But unless your heart has been radically changed, unless real love is growing in your heart because you've seen what I have done for you, unless you've been humbled by the knowledge that there is no love in your life that's worthy of God, and unless, secondly, you have been built up by the knowledge that I have paid everything and I have given you all my salvation, you will never love like this. That's the reason dear friends, why the Bible is constantly saying that the mark of the church is that it pours itself out in compassion for the people who are most in need in its city. You know, you've got two kinds of moralists, I think. You've got what I call social moralists. That means they live lives of personal licentiousness, but they're really good socially. They're really careful about public good deeds. And then you've got the other kind of moralist, and that is that they're very, very moral in their public life and, they, and they're very careful sexually and all those, those sort of ways, and yet they're tremendously selfish when it comes to helping people in need. They're both moralists. They're both moralists. Liberal moralists and conservative moralists. Left-wing moralists and right-wing moralists, see? But the gospel creates something unique. A person with integrity both inside and outside, both in the personal and the social morality, is created by the gospel. And you know, what's very interesting is the kind of love that the Good Samaritan shows has a tremendous impact on the lawyer. Because at the end, Jesus says, now who is the hero of this story? And the expert in the law has to say, the one who showed mercy, the Samaritan, the one that I hate the most. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. What is he trying to get at? He's trying to say, here's the sum of it all. Unless you're crushed and convicted by the magnitude of the love God requires, you will never be humbled enough to receive the love that he offers in the gospel. Can I say that again? Until you are crushed and convicted by the magnitude of the love he requires, that's what he's trying to say to the lawyer, you will never be humbled enough to receive the love that he offers in the gospel. And only when you receive that love and say, yes, I'm a sinner, I have a heart wound, and my old foundation is broken up, and I see that my righteousness cannot save me. But what Jesus has done for me is everything. 
You know, you see, you see how you see how simple the Christian faith is? It's to say, I am nothing. Jesus, be my everything. That's all it takes. And yet it can't happen unless he helps you. It was the lawyer's incapable of it. You and me, we're incapable of it. Until you're crushed by the magnitude of what he requires, you won't be humble enough to, to receive the love he offers. And it's not until you receive the love he offers that you will be able, enabled, to bit by bit by bit become more and more like the Good Samaritan, who, of course, is Jesus himself. Conclusion. If there's anybody here who now sees that though you've thought you've been a Christian for a long time, like Nathan Cole, but actually all along you've just sort of looked at Jesus as a teacher through which you're going to justify yourself, now you see why you will be incapable of that kind of love. Before you can be a good neighbor, you need a neighbor. You need Jesus to neighbor you. Jesus is the good Samaritan, you see. We're the ones who are lying in the road. In our own blood, Jesus comes along and gives us everything necessary. Until you see Jesus as your good Samaritan, you'll never be a good Samaritan. Until you see that Jesus is the one who must neighbor you. Until you're neighbored, you won't be able to neighbor. And Christian friends, a lot of us are in this kind of position, in this kind of condition. We intellectually know this stuff, but it hasn't yet really, really exploded in our heart, propelling us out. You know, I have seen an awful lot of people who do help the needy and the poor burn out. Unless there is a continual re-grasping of the, the glory of what Jesus has done for you, unless that's continually exploding, like in an engine. You know, an engine is just a ton of explosions, little spark plugs creating explosions. In the, in the chambers, making the pistons go. Explosion after explosion after explosion. When you worship, when you pray, these little teeny explosions should be happening and that's the only thing that will enable you to love. The funny thing about love, friends, is if you see you cannot be happy without love and then you realize that as soon as you love, you will immediately begin to see how much it costs you. You'll get hurt. People will amuse, use you and abuse you. You will be trapped forever unless you break out of the conundrum through the gospel. I don't know how many times I have people say, I can't live with love and I can't live without it. Because as soon as I move out to get the love that I need and give the love that I want to give, I'm continually getting hurt. People are never, they're always letting me down. The only way you will be dynamized and strengthened and energized to give that kind of love that you need to give, that you want to give, that the world needs, is to be constantly having little explosions of the realization and the experience of his love in your heart. It's the only way out. The only way. And therefore, Christian friends, let the glory of what he's done dawn on you all over again. And then you will be merciful even as he is merciful. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your son, Jesus Christ, is the perfect teacher. We thank you that he put us in the corner and he, and he didn't let us out until we grabbed a hold of him. Father, every one of us in this room needs somehow to be cornered. We're all so different. We fit into general categories, but in another way, we're all very unique. Some of us just need to see that... Uh, there is no way that we can be capable of the great love that we want to give until we see how little we love 
and how much we've been loved in the cross, in the gospel. And so we make Jesus not just our teacher, but our justifier. And I pray that there will be some people here today that will either make that step or now be moved to, uh, in that direction. And I pray, Father, that you would enable people to make Jesus their Savior, not just their teacher, not just their moral guide, but their Savior and their Lord. I pray that some people will pray that prayer today and ask, not even knowing exactly what that means, but they'll step over the line today or soon. But Father, for the, many of the rest of us, we have to see that we are just not loving people unconditionally. We're not loving like the Good Samaritan. We're not putting out. We're resentful. We're not forgiving. Uh, we are, uh, we're, we're full of self-pity. And the whole reason is because the glory of what you've done for us is not real enough to us. And therefore, though we are abused and we have been misused, we would take responsibility today as Christians for our misery. These people cannot make us miserable, though they've been abusing us. Rather, we take responsibility. We're not reveling and rejoicing in what you've done for us. The fact that we're Christ-justified people. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to recapture that this morning, that we would experience it, that we'd be moved, that our hearts would be softened, and that we would be propelled from here in peace and joy because we've touched you and seen the glory of you and your work for us, O great Samaritan, Jesus Christ. It's in your name that we come to the Father and pray all these things. Amen.